my name's Craig, one of the pastors here at Life Church. I want to start by telling you a story. It's not necessarily a true story, but it's, it's a good one. One day, a man was uh, a lifelong follower of Christ, was driving to Fort Wayne on I-69. He ran into a rough patch of gravel, and his car flipped, and it's turned over, and he was ejected from the car, and he was left laying in I-69, bleeding, and he had a concussion. He was half dead. Soon afterwards, a pastor named Chad, not necessarily any pastor's name Chad you might be thinking of, was driving to Fort Wayne. He saw the man lying on the road, and he assumed that someone else would call 911 or stop, and he pulled out into the far lane and continued on his trip. Not long after that, an elder of a church, a church named Life, not any church named Life you might be thinking of, was driving also to Fort Wayne on I-69. He saw the man lying in the road, and again, he believed someone else would take care of it, and so he, he pulled out into the other lane and continued his trip to Fort Wayne. Soon after that, an atheist, a man who denied the existence of God, who was on his way to Fort Wayne to a Planned Parenthood uh, fundraiser, saw the man lying in the road, and, and he stopped, and he called 911, and and he ran over to the man and he took off his own shirt and he used it as a bandage to, to try and stop the bleeding. He waited until the ambulance arrived and then he followed the ambulance to the hospital and realizing that they couldn't find the man's insurance card and that this was holding up treatment, he went up to the receptionist and, and he signed a check and dated it and made it out to the hospital and handed him a blank check and said, do whatever's necessary to take care of him. A few days later, he came and visited the man, and realizing that he was going to need rehab, he took it upon himself to raise funds for him and to help him and guide him to health. Now, you probably recognize some of the parallels of the story of the Good Samaritan in that story, because it's a word story put in a modern context. And if it sounds kind of harsh, that's the same way that the Jewish people would have heard Jesus tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. It would have been kind of harsh to them. A hated Samaritan came to the rescue of a Jew, and yet the priest and the, a Levite, two loved, beloved religious leaders, walked by. The problem is, we all know that there might be a kernel of truth in that even today. So today we're going to look at that parable and try and see what, what deep meanings Jesus meant for us to take from that. So let's bow our heads in prayer and we'll continue the service. <laughs> Heavenly Father, pray for the active presence of your Holy Spirit here today. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds that we may hear the things that Jesus wants us to hear that you will open up our minds to perhaps a new and fresh understanding of something that Jesus was trying to accomplish by telling this parable. Father, we thank you for preserving the word. We thank you for the people here today. And we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, who died upon the cross for us. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. 
Now, we've been on this journey of talking about parables, and Chad started us out, and he talked about how, you know, that, that parables came usually as Jesus' response to a question that he was asked, and that to truly understand the parable, you need to put it in the context of what Jesus was responding to. And he, Chad challenged us to go back and look at the parables and to try and pull out the questions. Chad also mentioned that the parables were Jesus' way of, of showing the deep meaning of God's kingdom and the deep understanding of what God wanted his followers to know. He wanted to reveal those deep things of God to his followers, but hide them from those who were God's opponents. And then Steve came on and he said, listen, we can find very practical applications in our lives when we read these parables, things that we should gleam and, and apply to our lives today. And last week he talked about forgiveness. And, and my takeaway from, from Steve's sermon was this, that for the Christian, forgiveness simply means to be a way of life. It's just what we're known for. It's what we do. Today, I want to go after this parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and I know I'm kind of up against a, a, a barrier because it's so familiar. It, it's in our common everyday language. In fact, uh, we have large organizations in the United Kingdom. There's a, a huge organization called the Samaritans. And if somebody has an emotional problem, they can call the Samaritans and they'll help them. There's an organization called the uh, Samaritan's Purse that helps places that have uh, all sorts of uh, disasters and helps with mission organizations. Uh, just this week, I was watching TV, and, and they talked about two good Samaritans that had stopped to help in an accident. There's a helicopter at a local hospital that, that uh, is called the Samaritan. In fact, uh, I'm not supposed to name names of organizations, but I'm going to make an exception today. It's called Parkview Samaritan. I actually was working at Parkview at the time. And they named the, the, the helicopter, and they had people, uh, employees, who were submitting names. And, and uh, Parkview Samaritan won. Uh, the name that uh, my group submitted, we didn't win. Uh, you want to know what it was? Park Chop. <laughs> they didn't even make the top five. I don't understand. But nevertheless, uh, you get the idea. It's just part of our language. It's so common. And the danger is because it's so familiar to us that we have this barrier that we already assume that we know what it's going to happen, what's going to be taught. John MacArthur, a noted theologian, says this. He refers to the parable of the Good Samaritan as the most familiar and yet most misunderstood of Jesus' parables. So I'm just going to ask you to try and open your mind today, to just try and be open to an idea that maybe there's more to this parable than just about showing kindness. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open to uh, Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screens, and uh, <clears throat> it's also in your bulletin. Beginning at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, this is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and, who, and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place where, and saw him, passed by on the other side. So two religious leaders. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend... I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So this is the parable. Basically, Jesus is responding to some questions. And in the response, he talks about a Samaritan that would have been hated by the Jews. The Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. In fact, they kept distance from each other. They were kind of like enemies. Uh, we have a priest and a Levite who would have been critical to the worship of God in the first century in the temple. And they walk by. But the hated enemy takes care of the wounded man. So if you want to truly understand this parable... What we need to do is go back and look at the questions. So the question is posed by a man who is called a lawyer. Now this isn't like the lawyers we have today. He wasn't an attorney, okay? He didn't deal with wills and, and, and lawsuits or court cases. What he dealt with was teaching religious law. He was an expert in the Old Testament, particularly the books of of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He would have known them backwards and forwards. So he knows a lot of what the Bible says. And his first question, which is the question I've placed in your bulletin, question number one, Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, so we see his motives. His motive really isn't to gain information, it's to test Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we know the motive was to, te was to test Jesus, but his question is a great question. Perhaps it's the most important question that any human being can ask. What do I do that when this body fails, that when I die, I can continue to live on? Now, I'm not an expert in Greek grammar 
But a man who was named J.C. Ryle says that a better understanding of this uh, verse would be to say, not so much what do I need to do, but what do I need to keep doing forever until the end of my life in order to inherit eternal life. It's a continuous thing. What do I need to keep doing so I don't lose my salvation? And Jesus asked him a question. Instead of just answering it, Jesus asked him a question. Because Jesus, isn't that amazing about Jesus? Jesus could look right through somebody's heart. He could look right through the, the fog that they were trying to put up around them and see their motives and see what they were saying. He knows he knows the answer to the question. He knows this is a test. So Jesus returns by saying, what does it say? What does the Bible say? And the man answers, the lawyer answers, two pieces of scripture. First, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then also from Leviticus 19.18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In fact, Jesus himself would answer this way when he was asked in Matthew 22.36. He's asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So the lawyer essentially has answered correctly. And Jesus tells him that. If you can do that, you can inherit eternal life. But the lawyer knows he has a problem. The lawyer knows that to love God with everything, all he is, all the time, and to love every neighbor, every person, all the time, he knows he can't do that. He knows that if that's the requirement, that the requirement is that he's got to think about God every minute of his life, that he can't even for one moment of weakness binge watch Dancing with the Stars for the last three seasons, he knows he can't do it. If Maybe I can love that neighbor or that neighbor, but not that one over there. Not that one. And to not love them means he can't inherit eternal life. So the lawyer then needs a loophole. He needs a way out. He needs to find a way that he can still get eternal life. See, he knows that he can't. And to his credit, the rabbis taught there was a loophole. Jesus mentions it in Matthew 5, 43. In Matthew 5, 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus himself even mentions that Neighbors don't include enemies according to what the rabbis teach. See, the lawyer's looking for a loophole. What's a loophole? It's a way out. I had a friend, and my friend had a drinking problem, and he had been stopped for drinking many, many times. And one night he was out late, and he was drinking alcohol, and, and he was driving home. 
and, and suddenly he looked up behind him. He ran a stop sign or something, and there was a police car behind him, and the police car turned on his lights and started to follow him. And, and he just continued to drive, and soon there was a second police car and a third police car and a fourth police car, all following him in this high-speed chase of about 30 miles an hour. It must have been a pretty interesting scene, more like a parade than a chase. But nevertheless, and where did he go? He drove home. He drove home, he pulled into his driveway, and he got out, and he stood there like this. Well, at his trial, he was charged with two things. He was charged with driving under the influence and fleeing the police. And um, his lawyer didn't argue about the driving under the influence. They had had a breath alcohol and all this other stuff. But he said, now really? And he put each one of the police officers up on the stand and he, and he asked them, he said, now really? Is he really fleeing? I mean, he wasn't really trying very hard. He was more like just taking you to a safe place. And he tried to find a loophole and said that the law really never says what the requirement is for fleeing, that you guys could have stopped him if you wanted to. Well, he didn't win the case, but that's what a loophole is. And so the lawyer is trying to find a loophole. And that's what his second question is all about. The first question is a great question. How do I inherit eternal life? But the second question, it's in your bulletin, there's a blank. Second question, Luke 10, 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, again, Luke tells us his motive, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, what does it mean, justify himself? Well, to justify himself would to imply he wanted to validate the life he was leading. He wanted to say, hey, I, I love my good neighbors, and that's enough. I don't need to love my bad neighbors. And so he wanted an excuse for not loving everyone. The lawyer wants to hear that he does not have to love all people, just certain people. And then Jesus tells the parable. And the thing that would have been shocking for the Jewish audience was that this Samaritan that was their enemy, that they were not even supposed to associate with, would actually stop and care for a Jew, someone they treated like an enemy. So instead of defining for the lawyer who his neighbors are, Jesus actually changes the question. Jesus says, who is it that acts like a neighbor? And in the parable, the one who acts like a neighbor is the Samaritan. So at the end of the parable, the answer is clear. But you notice the lawyer can't even say the Samaritan. He says the one who has mercy. He can't even say Samaritan out loud. And then the story ends. The exchange ends. And that's the problem. You see, it shouldn't have ended there. Something more should have happened. The lawyer... The central listen for the lawyer was this, and for us, that if you could love God with everything you are and never once in your life binge watch the last three seasons of Dancing with the Stars, that's a joke, <laughs> and 
love everybody the way the Samaritan did, if you had that kind of divine love for God and others, you could inherit eternal life. But the lawyer understands he doesn't love like that. No one can love like that. And that's the problem. In fact, the apostle Paul would say, when I saw the law, when I understood what was required to get me to heaven, the things I had to do to climb that ladder to heaven, it slew me because I knew I couldn't do it. I couldn't be that good. There was too much of a sin nature in me. Something had to change. The key is this. The lawyer shouldn't have let the exchange end. After hearing this parable, the lawyer should have looked at Jesus and said, Master, I'm incapable of living like that. I'm incapable of loving like that. I can't love my enemy the way the Samaritan did. He should have said, Jesus, if there's no loophole, if there's no limitation, I'm doomed. Jesus, I can't love God and I can't love others like that. But he didn't. The story ends for the lawyer. How do we enter this story? How do we enter this parable? Well, I know how I enter it. You see, it isn't about me doing good deeds. It's not about me being a Samaritan. I entered this story in 2002 because in 2002, I was the enemy of God. And in 2002, I was the broken, bleeding, hopeless, half-dead man lying in the road. I needed someone to come and save me. I needed someone to come and heal me. I needed someone to pick me up and put me on a path. And that was Jesus. But the lawyer didn't see that. If only he had seen that his Savior, his good Samaritan, was right in front of him, Jesus. But he missed that. We can even see in the parable that Jesus talks about the kind of empathy that the Samaritan has. In verse 33, it says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Throughout the New Testament, the word compassion is associated with Jesus or with the Heavenly Father. It's a divine compassion. Jesus has compassion. He does not pass on the other side. He does not reject. He stops. Now, is this parable about the gospel, about Jesus, or is this parable about good deeds? Which is it? Well, if you are already a follower of Christ, if you are already a believer, if you already are confident in your salvation that you know you have inherited eternal life, nothing removes Jesus' instruction 
to go and do likewise, to go and love others. But here's the, the rub. While we are compelled by the gospel to live a life worthy of Jesus' teaching, we need to understand that that can only happen because Jesus has made us new. It's such an amazing thing to see. I have a friend, a man who's not with us anymore. He's gone to heaven. And this man used to tell me how his life had changed. And, and I talked to other people, and they told me, you know, when he was younger, you know what? He would tell you, I don't care if I live or you live. In fact, I might just kill you. I hate you. And then one day Jesus came and the man told me how Jesus picked him up and cleaned him off and changed his heart and made him a new creation. And he became a loving man. He changed. And on his deathbed, I asked him, how are you and God doing right now? And he told me, we're good. I know where I'm going. I know I'm going to heaven. Do you know if you're good with God? Do you know that? Here's the point. You see, way too often people in our society, we hang on to this understanding that it's about what we do that gets us to heaven. Because we're holding on to the old law. We try and hold on to this thing that somehow we can be divinely perfect like Jesus. But there's still enough darkness in our hearts, still enough flesh that we live in that we can't make it. But there's good news. The good news is that while the old Jewish law said, do this and you will live, we have a gospel. We have good news that says, now because of Jesus, you may live. So go do this. We are compelled by the good news to go love our neighbors. We are compelled to go and do likewise. John MacArthur describes the lawyer's response to the parable this way. The end of the story, the end of the encounter is Jesus saying, go and do the same. Speaking about the lawyer, did he? No. Could he? No. Would he repent? Apparently not. Who will inherit eternal life? Not him. Because he can't love the way it needs to be. And he missed the Savior standing in front of him. Who will? Those who repent of their lack of love toward God and others. Who cry out for mercy and forgiveness from Christ. Who paid the penalty for forgiveness through his death on the cross. The lawyer missed it. We can't. Now, today some of you are here today because life's been rough. Perhaps you're going through a divorce, perhaps an illness, loss of a job, financial failure, loss of a loved one, facing jail. There are sorrows in this world. And I'd love to be able to say to all of you that if you follow Jesus, those sorrows will go away. But, but I can't because Scripture doesn't say that. The truth is, sorrows fall into the life of Christ followers 
as much as those who reject him. But here's what I can say. If you're not following Jesus, if you don't believe he died for your sins, and you're going through a divorce, I can't promise you that Jesus will fix your marriage, but I can promise you you won't be alone. If you're sick and ill, and you're not following Jesus, I can't say that if you follow him, he will heal your sickness. I can say he will heal your dark heart and your rebellion. Loss of a job, financial failure, all of these things are real problems here on earth. But they're not problems in heaven. They're not problems in heaven. And if you are going through a divorce, loss of a job, financial ruin, sickness, fear, facing prison, if all these things are in your life now, I'm not going to tell you they're not real problems, but I will tell you they're not problems in heaven. And if you don't have Jesus, you've got a bigger problem than those problems here on earth because you don't have heaven. So how do you get heaven? The most important question that any human being can answer in their lifetime. How do I know I'm right with God? How do I inherit eternal life? How do I know I'm saved? There were two Christ followers, Paul and Silas. And they, asked, they were asked this question. It's the last question in your bulletin. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Paul and Silas were ministering in a prison, in a jail. And they were asked this question in Acts 16. And they answered it this way. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You see, God has already done all the work. All you must do is receive in faith the salvation that God offers. And fully trust in Jesus alone for the payment of your sin. Believe in him and you will not perish. God is offering salvation as a free gift. We're going to finish this service. We're going to join in worship. And I'm going to pray. But you should know I've been praying about this moment for the last several weeks now. And even though I may not have known your name, I've been praying for you because God knows your name. If you're a part of this community of believers, I've been praying for you. I know there's sorrows in your life. And I know that there's hurts and uncertainty and fear. And some of you may feel. I know some of you have sick children in your families, and that's so scary. We're going to finish up here and... and we're going to have people come down here and, and we'll pray with you. Brothers and sisters who will pray with you. Help to bear your burdens. Offer a word of hope. Speak into your life. Speak life into you. If you don't want to come and pray, I'll pray with them because I need prayer. There's no shame in that. That's family. It's what we do. There's also people in a prayer room down the hallway. If you want to go down there and pray with them, you can. 
But if you're not following Jesus, I want to talk to you right now. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. I can't save you. No action you do can save you. Only Jesus can save you. But I'm going to ask you to do something. If today you know that you're going to follow Jesus, and for the first time you can say, I accept Jesus as my Savior. I'm going to ask you to come down here and pray with us. I'm going to ask you to tell someone I accepted Jesus today. Why? See, that action doesn't save you. It really, what it really does is, is it only acknowledges publicly to other people what's already going on inside of you, what God has already done. And by doing that, it kind of solidifies it in your life because you're showing others and it helps to hold you accountable. You don't just slip away. And the other thing it does is it adds to the testimony. Just like my friend who passed away recently who said he picked me up, he cleaned me off, he healed me, he set me on a new path. You join that path too. And testifying to what God's work has been in the life of this congregation, in the life of this city, in this world. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to come down here and pray, or you can go to the prayer room and pray. Let people walk with you. This is a family. We're the family of God. So we do this together. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to dim the lights. I'm going to pray. Father we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to do within hearts what my words cannot do I pray that your Holy Spirit will awaken birth new lives I pray for courage people who right now are on the on the line and saying I, do, I don't know if I can say that I don't know if I can do that it's not about being perfect if it's about being perfect nobody here is going to get there it's about the perfection of your son so Lord I just pray that uh, in this time that we will feel the tangible presence of your Holy Spirit because I know you're here. I know you're here in the believers. I know you're here in our midst. And so, Lord, we pray that people will have the courage and today they won't leave this building. If today they know that they've got heaven, for the first time they know they've got heaven, that they will tell somebody, Today, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. So we pray, Lord.
pray now for everyone in this room. And whenever there's someone carrying a burden alone, that they'll be willing to share it with someone here who will love them, who care for them. Pray for them. So I ask for this in Jesus' name, the one who died for us in the only way we have to heaven. Amen.